Welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. And today we are podcasting from the offices of Wired Magazine in downtown San Francisco, the corner of Bryant and Third Street, where the magazine is located. I'm interviewing Chris Anderson, the editor-in-chief of Wired and author of The Long Tail, Why the Future of Business is Selling Less of More. And we're located in an old warehouse that's been revamped for uh, modern journalism. So you may hear some street noise in the background. I hope it adds to the ambiance. Chris, uh, in traditional retail and elsewhere, there's an 80-20 rule. 80% of the sales come from the top 20% of the items. But you talk of a 98% rule, a whole revolution in how people choose things, the choices available to them, and the way business is done. Explain. The 98% rule, which is um, not a rule, um, but a a couple data points uh, that got me started on this whole thing, um, came out of uh, one particular meeting in early 2004 with a um, a company called Ecast, which is a digital jukebox company. And digital jukebox is like a regular jukebox in a bar with, you know, lights and speakers, etc. But it, rather than having just 100 CDs, it has a broadband connection and a big hard drive, so it can have many thousands of tracks. And, and um, the CEO asked me, you know, what percentage of the top 10,000 albums I thought sold at least one track per, per month. And um, I thought about the 80-20 rule and assumed that it was probably around 20%. Um, and then thought maybe digital is different, maybe I'd maybe go way out there and say 50%, um, which would be a lot. That would be 5,000 tracks compared to a few hundred in a traditional jukebox. So I thought that was really pushing out there. Um, and the answer was that I was just way off. It was 98% of, of those albums um, were sold one, at least one track per, per, per month. And I went around and talked to other companies, and, 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 and they kept this, this number, these numbers in the 90% range, 90%, 95%, something like that, you kept finding that as, you know, all these other companies that had these massive inventories, these you know, orders of magnitude more, more, more products than you would find in traditional bricks and mortar, they were finding that, that the more they put out there, the more demand they found for these items that weren't traditionally sold in the regular marketplace. There's not a lot, not a lot of demand, mind you. Um, but there was a little bit of demand for almost everything. And they were making it up on volume, so to speak. So to speak. There, I mean, there were so many things out there in what I would later come to call the tail um, that they were adding up to a significant market. You know, sometimes it was only 10% of the market, but it was 10% new stuff. And sometimes it was more than that, 25%, even a third of the market, was all these onesies and twosies stretched out there um, that because these were digital marketplaces, they could efficiently offer at very, very low marginal costs. Because the cost of distribution was so, is so much lower in these digital markets. If it's, if it's an entry, on a, you know, if it's, it was just a tiny amount of storage on a hard drive and entering the database, uh, the marginal costs are effectively zero. You don't have to be discriminating. You don't have to choose and guess at what's going to be a big seller and what's not. You can throw it all out there. And what you find is if you throw it all out there and make it easy for people to find stuff using recommendations or search or whatever, um, that there's a lot more demand out there on the tail than we had measured before. So an example would be Amazon, which, when it first started, was, quote, only a bookseller, but an extraordinary bookseller that had a selection that far outstripped the largest superstore of its day, which would be the Barnes & Nobles or the Borders, which would have maybe 100,000 titles. Amazon would carry now how many titles, roughly? Well, Millions. Well, you know, actually, it's completely unbounded. Um, and this is, and I'll, and I'll explain how. So Amazon lists about 3.7 million books in print. But say billion or million? 3.7 million oh, books um, in, in print. And that's just the ones in print. Of course, most books are not in print. Um, and Amazon seamlessly integrates to the used bookstores, which we now have a, a, a liquid market, a secondary market of used books. And there are probably about 70 million books um, that have been published in English um, out there at some point in the last 100 years or so. Um, you know, only a tiny, of, and you know, when you think of a superstore like a Borders or Barnes and Nobles having huge inventory, and compared to the independents they replaced, they do have huge inventory. But when you compare the 100,000 books that are in a superstore with the, you know, probably tens of millions that are now available between Amazon's in-print and the used bookstores, you know, um, uh, marketplaces, you realize that even what we thought was huge, a huge variety and choice was a tiny fraction of what was actually available. And your point is that at a store like Amazon, it's not just the top 100,000 that sell. They do sell well, presumably, at Amazon, 
but the next 100,000, the next 100,000, the next 100,000, although they don't sell as well as the previous 100,000, still sell a significant portion and contribute to the bottom line. It, it, exactly, and sometimes they even contribute more to the bottom line um, in a way that we can talk about uh, later. But um, you know what we found is what we find is that is that you know you're always going to have hits, and the hits will sell more than anything else. Um, and then you have the non-hits, and in traditional stores, you cut it off. You cut off that tail at a certain point. Our shelf space runs out of room, or the economics of this marketplace run out of room, and and that's where you stop offering offering stuff. And so we've seen the world through the sort of at this point, we're going to have to do that, that the terrifying thing of describing a power law in, on, on radio. Um, so, um, you, all marketplaces... Anyway, wait, 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 get, get your chalk out. Everybody yeah. at home, you want to just make sure you want to draw this okay. uh, for yourself as well. So, all marketplaces, um, if, you rank, if you take all the products in the marketplace and you rank them by their popularity, sales, viewership, listenership, whatever... Um, what you find is what we call power law shape, which is like a ski slope, and it starts very high on the left, and it falls off very quickly, and it's a relatively flat, long tail, and that's where the name came from, that goes to the right. And, you know, if, you've got, if, you're, if, you have, if you have non-zero marginal costs of distribution, you have to be quite selective, and obviously if you're going to carry just a few of the items, you'll carry the best-selling ones. And so you just focus, you just hack it off right after the, you know, right at the steep part of the curve. You know, as soon as the curve gets close to the bottom, you know, you then, you then stop. And that's really the way we've seen markets for the last 100 years. Um, but in these new markets with infinite shelf space and very low marginal costs, you, you can actually offer everything. You pull back, you see the whole curve. And what you find is that that line that's sort of, that's sort of bumping along the bottom, it isn't quite at zero. Those products all sell a little bit. Um, you know, we, because the scales have been, the scale of this curve has been set by the hits, it looks at their, like they're at zero. Right, it's indistinguishable it, from the horizontal it, axis. Exactly, but if, you, but if you sort of, you know, don't set the scale according to hits and actually look at the absolute numbers, um, they're not zero. And for music, for example, the music services, you know, those, 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 album, those tracks that are not available in a Walmart are still being downloaded several hundred times a day, uh, sorry, sorry, excuse me, several hundred times a month in a service like Rhapsody. And because there are something like a million or two million tracks that in there in the tail compared to just a few tens of thousands up there in the head, all those you know, 10 times a million gets to be a relatively uh, big market. And that, and that is, um, you know, and that's, and that's what we're, we're finding in these, is that you still have hits, but there are, uh, the niches are now so, so many in number um, that you, and because you can, act, you can, you can offer them all, that you can add up that tail, add up the area under that curve that isn't quite at zero and goes on forever. And that's the new marketplace we're seeing. And you know, what's fascinating about it is that people don't just want the hits, right? A lot of people think, well, people want what's popular and what's popular by definition must be what's good because it sells. And yet these small number of less popular songs, shows, books, all these different dimensions are finding an audience. They are. And, you know, this is what we're, what we're discovering is that we're not all the same. You know, this shouldn't, this shouldn't require me to say so, but... That's yeah, a good thing. You know, the, but, but the reality is that even if we're the same in our, in our television taste, we both lost, like watch CSI or whatever, um, we're probably different in some aspect of our life. Uh, maybe we're different in our books interests, maybe we're different in our hobbies, we're different on, you know, in, our, in our cultural interests. Um, and you know, in the old marketplace was a one-size-fits-all, lowest common denominator marketplace where you had to find products that touched us where our interests intersect. These are, when, these are the ones that sort of that, that have broad interests because they, 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 they speak to our common interests. Um, and that's a great way to maximize an audience um, if, you need, if you need critical mass. Um, however, um, it's very hard in traditional markets to touch us where our interests diverge. Um, and the, the problem being not only that, that you and I aren't alike, um, but also that even if we were alike, we may not live in the same place. So if you're interested into Japanese anime, um, you know, it's hard to find a concentrated audience for Japanese anime in any particular place outside of probably New York City and a few other major urban areas. You have what we call distributed demand, which is to say that, that the, the geography doesn't dictate our interest in this cultural sphere. And you have this kid in that town, this kid in that town, 
and there was no good way to, to reach them through traditional marketplaces because they weren't concentrated. Right, the local blockbuster wouldn't find it worthwhile to have uh, an anime section if there's three people in the town of uh, exactly. Davenport, now, Iowa. There may be an audience for several million anime you know, uh, consumers in America, but um, they're not concentrated in, in, in more than a couple places, and as a result, most of the country was underserved in offering anime choice. Um, the great thing about marketplaces like Netflix or Amazon um, is that uh, they don't distinguish between geographically concentrated and geographically distributed demand. It's all demand as far as they can concern, they're concerned. And they can essentially aggregate all that demand by, being, by having this sort of you know, geography agnostic distribution platform called the Internet. Very cool. And Exactly. And, um, and then finally you know, tap the latent demand in the marketplace for anime that's been there all along just not tappable through their old, the old distribution mechanism. It wasn't economic in the financial sense of the word, and now it is. So what's changed? Well, what's changed is that we, we have distribution mechanisms that are geography independent. We have distribution systems uh, that uh, make it very easy to find um, things. Um, so you know, the combination of... I mean, this is not, by the way, the first time in history. Uh, I, in the book, I tell the story of the 1896 Sears Roebuck catalog. It's a great story. Tell it again. So um, uh, if you're at a Kansas farmer in 1895, um, you know, your variety was pretty much you know, whatever was in the general store in the town 20 miles away. Um, and, that, and, and, that was, and, that, and that was it. And uh, it wasn't much selection. The prices weren't great. Um, and then it came along the uh, two important inventions. Uh, the first was, of course, the railroad system, which uh, enabled sort of trans transcontinental distribution products relatively quickly. And the second was the notion of the centralized warehouse. So Sears Roebuck took a centralized warehouse, um, eventually in Chicago, and aggregated and, and, and got all the products that anyone in America might possibly want, turned into a catalog, which is like Amazon of its day, 500 pages long. Small print, 500 it, it's small pages print. too. And it's <laughs> available, by the way, in reprint on Amazon today, which is a, a beautiful kind of you know, resonance, I think. And, um, and, then, and then distributed the catalog to all these all these, all these Kansas farms and others um, uh, around the country. And, and you just sort of put yourself in the head of this Kansas farmer and with the day that showed up. And there were sort of, you know, 12 pages of buttons, you know, sort of like 80 different kinds of Chinese tea, this extraordinary variety. I mean, like the first time you, you, you went to Amazon, this amazing window opened up to this cornucopia of stuff out there. And it was enabled by, this, by the ability to, to, to reach distributed demand. For, and distributed demand means that it didn't matter whether there was an audience in that town for 80 kinds of Chinese tea. There's an audience in America for 80 kinds of Chinese tea, and that was good enough for a system that had, that had um, efficient, uh, an efficient centralized storage of, of inventory and efficient distributed you know, a delivery of that inventory thanks to the postal service. Um, today, you have services like Amazon, which is the exact same thing, except for now they've taken it to the next level, um, you again have centralized storage of, of inventory and distributed you know, d delivery, thanks to the mail, but then you have, rather than a physical catalog, you have an a digital catalog. So and you can just update it, change it. Digital catalogs mean that A, they're unbounded in their size, and B, you have the really important thing in the long tail, which is findability. You can do search, you have recommendations, the marketplace dynamically reconfigures on the fly based on, on your interests, um, etc. And that's simple, and that has taken this sort of the Sears Roebuck model and sort of put it on steroids and take it to the next level, which is why we have a long tail in those marketplaces today. You said they had a large warehouse. It must have been extremely large. I think you well, said it was the largest business building in the world. It, it, was, it was the largest business building in the world. But even, at but, the time. At, at, at the time. Um, but um, it was more clever than even that. Uh, so uh, they recognized the, the, um, the advantage of distributed inventory as well. So it wasn't just, so their catalog was partially composed of products in their warehouse and partially composed of products available from third parties. And that Sears Roebuck became an agent for buggy manufacturers mm -hmm. so they could con, you know, construct these things. And they were sort of, and, and, the, and the catalog was a storefront for a network of distributed you know, manufacturers and merchants who held the inventory. So Sears Roebuck didn't even bear the inventory costs. And today in Amazon, Amazon has their marketplace right. full of third party merchants, including those used booksellers I was telling you about. Um, who have all the okay, who carry all the, the costs of holding that inventory, so Amazon doesn't have to. So Amazon is just like Sears Roebuck, you know, 100, however many years ago, is a is a virtual storefront um, that aggregates choice inventory, makes it available to people in a way that's very easy, um, at almost no cost to Amazon itself. 
with just-in-time fulfillment from those third parties. I thought the Japanese invented that. You mean Mr. Sears had an insight similar to that? It's very. Uh, no, I think it, in the fact, in fact, Sears, uh, the Sears robot guys didn't do one thing. Amazon did do. Um, Sears actually did the shipping itself, and they had this incredibly complicated um, and, 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 and you know, state-of-the-art at the time uh, series of pneumatic tubes and, and conveyor belts within the building um, that allowed them to pick and pack. Um, so uh, now what I don't know, and this will be my next book, no doubt, is whether they had any, any instances where the third-party merchant could fulfill the order and ship directly to the customer themselves, or whether it all had to go through Sears. Yeah. The great thing about the Amazon model is that, is that they do third-party fulfillment. So and, and of course, they have more than one warehouse. I assume Amazon. And they, and they have right. many warehouses, but um, you know, they, you know, Amazon's a combination of Sears Roebuck and then on eBay on the other side. And eBay never touches any of the products themselves. It's all third-party fulfillment. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of you know FedEx in the old days. Every package spent the night in Memphis at some point. Right. Uh, that was the Sears model of the day, but it's better if you can get someone else to ship it for a- you. Absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the, the you know the fundamental formula of the long tail is the lower the economics the distribution, the more stuff you can carry. The cheaper your shelf space, the more stuff you can put on it. Um, and by, you know, by doing things like tapping distributed demand, by having centralized inventory, by using third-party merchants to carry all the, all the fulfillment costs, you're essentially lowering the cost of shelf space. And that's why Amazon's potential inventory is, is, is effectively unbounded. Now, one place that's going on, obviously, uh, we haven't talked about yet, is, uh, is the blogosphere. And or on, more simply, uh, online versions of magazines, uh, newspapers, etc. Um, newspapers traditionally, uh, an opinion piece is 750 words, because space is scarce. Online, there's no real meaning to scarcity except boredom and and this issue of you know find an audience for it. Uh, so that's the same phenomenon going on there, right? Basically, well, you know. Being in the media business, um, I you know I see I see the subtleties of where this model fails. Um, the shelf space, you know, there was absolutely a scarcity of pages in our magazines, um, but that 700 words isn't dictated simply by the, by paper. It's also dictated by attention. Yeah. I'm not sure anybody wants to read more than 750 words of a single uh, a single um, idea. Says a guy who's written a book of 240 <laughs> yeah. pages on a single idea. But anyway, that aside. Um, you know, there was a certain, you know, the disciplines enforced by the economics of paper. Also, I think, uh, um, forced discipline in not wasting people's time. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a bl- I'm a blogger as well as being a magazine editor, and I do try to keep my posts uh, to no longer than 750 words, not because I have any limits of, of space on, on the web browser, but because I'm respectful of my reader's time. Yeah, that's very thoughtful of you. And, and what's the address of that blog while we're talking uh, about That's thelongtail.com. And we'll have a link to that at the uh, EconTalk homepage. Um, now, this expansion of consumer choice, this incredible growth in uh, opportunity to tailor one's desire, products to one's desires, good thing or bad thing? Mixed thing. Um, you know, it's good, you know, in general, um, more choice um, and being able to sort of uh, find what you're into, into allows you to pursue your interests more, 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 uh, you know, more deeply. Um, so you don't have to settle for the stuff that touches our shared interests. You can find the stuff that touches your interests um, alone. Um, that's, that's good in the sense you can go down the rabbit hole as deep as it goes. Um, it's bad in the sense that you and I may not share as much, as much anymore. Now, I think I think that's a net positive because that you know if, we, if, if the only movies we saw were the movies that made in the megaplex, there's a relatively superficial connection between. Yeah, them. and rather um, be rather disappointing to meet and say, "What'd you think of Britney's last album?" And neither of us turns out have heard it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but in a world of top forty radio where there's nothing else available, we probably would have heard it. And, yeah, that's true. And the answer is that you know we probably had a relatively um, uh, you know weak association with that content. It was, you know, it, it didn't define us. Um, however, if you allow me to choose from any music available, um, you and I will almost certainly diverge um, at some point in our musical taste, and we won't have anything to talk about, but I'll be happier with the music I'm listening to, and you may be happier with the music you're listening to. Right. So I assume uh, you know, people who worry about this, you know, the bowling alone crowd, uh, this idea that somehow we're all off in our own little uh, cu- uh, cubicle surfing for the weird little music and weird little books and peculiar little stuff that we're each interested in. Uh, Presumably, they're the other side of us, the 
side that wants to connect will find other ways well, to connect. Yeah. So I don't really find it very worrisome. No, I mean, you know, a couple things give me peace of mind in this. Um, the first is that we're not, we don't all just have one interest. You know, we have multiple interests. You'll have your political interests, your cultural interests, your professional interests, your personal interests, your regional interests, etc. Um, so if each one of them you can think of as being a niche, um, and each one of them you may go quite, quite, quite deep because you have so many of them, and each niche can be is there to be to, there to be explored. You're probably going to expand your, you know, the network of people that you're you're communicating with, and those communications will be on a more deeper level because you're you're you're, you're talking about shared interests. So I'm, my my sense is that we won't be bowling alone. We'll probably be bowling in small leagues, but many of them. And each each. Alley will have the, be the color that we'd like. And to exactly, <laughs> exactly, and, the, and, and, and they'll be tilted just right to compensate for my in my spin. Um, so that that that's that that reassures me on some level. I do think that um, on some level there, there there's going to be less of a of a common culture. I mean, we're, we can't assume that everyone saw the same thing last night on TV. As a matter of fact, in our office, it's it's quite naughty to talk about what you saw on TV last night because so many people had TiVos. Um, and although they may be watching the same show, they're not watching it at the same time. Uh, that that's called ruining the, the, the surprise, and, and, and we shouldn't do it. Um, but there's always the weather. There's always the weather. Yeah. Well, and I, I can't think of anything better than than ending the conversational topic of what was on TV last night. I think probably the world would be a better place. But maybe, maybe I'm, I'm uh, that's my own peculiarity. Um, in your book, you talk about the people who are critical of choice and who are worried about um, choice as a um, paralyzing effect, that somehow all this choice is going to leave us uh, somehow bewildered or overwhelmed. And yet you talk about things that emerge to help people cope with that choice. Talk about some of those. This is responding particularly to Barry Schwartz, who wrote a book called The Paradox of Choice. And it's really quite a good book, and, um, and I've seen him give a speech, and people really resonate with that message. And he talks, um, he talks about you know, trying to how hard it is to buy genes now because there's so many different kinds. And he uses a famous example of the Stanford Jam experiment. The what? The Stan- oh, Stanford Jam, jam experiment yes. where, where researchers would give, a, would give people a choice of six kinds of jam and they would buy a certain number and then they would make like 30 kinds of jam and they would find they'd buy less and they'd be less happy with the purchases they made because, because why do they have to become an expert on jam and maybe they should have bought that other thing and it's, this is the... This is the kind of class of tyranny, classic tyranny of choice, which is that, which is that you know, um, it introduces so many decisions you've got to make that people find it overwhelming. And, and, and I, you know, as I thought about this, and I thought, why does that sort of feel so contrary to my own experience? I, I, I started by looking at jam. So I went to the local supermarket um, where they now have 300 kinds of jam, which has doubled, actually, in the last, in the last uh, six years since the study came out. And I thought, well, even the, either the supermarket is stupid or there's something wrong with this with this theory, and and what's wrong with the theory is that is that the scenario that Barry describes, which is which is actually quite a valid one, we all understand on some level, that describes marketplaces where you don't have help in making that choice. Um, you know, take a shelf. So so think of all the things you don't know about a shelf. Well, let's say let's take some category you don't know anything about. You're buying vitamins or or, or herbal supplements. So you have very little information on which to base the choice. You probably don't recognize the brands. It's probably organized in a taxonomy you don't fully understand. The only information you have is what's written on the label. You don't know what other people in the store did because you don't have access to that that data. Well, of course, if you do that on Amazon or any other online service, all that has become become available. you know, each one of those products will have your customer reviews, they'll have ratings, you can rank by best selling, you can split up by different micro genres, you can use search, you, know, all, you, you can find out what everyone else did. And, and if, you know, if you don't know anything about the product, the simple act of clicking rank by best selling organizes it in terms of popularity. And you, if you, do, if you rank, pick the top one, you, you, know, you did what everyone else did, which can't be, which can't be that, that hard. So think of the internet before Google. Uh, the internet before Google was, before search engines of any sort, was a kind of a baffling overabundance of random crap, right? You know, you start surfing, go from page to page to page, and you're lost. You know, and it's weird cat pages. You know, all pages, all, all courses led to cat pages back in the early 90s. Um, and then, of course, then and and, and it was kind of, you know, and that's what people would say. I just don't know how to find anything. It's all crap. And then we have Google. And what Google does is is it snaps. It snaps a disordered, chaotic marketplace into shape. And so finally it orders it 
in terms of popularity, but not popularity as the most popular page. It's popularity as defined by the search term you enter. So what you've done is simply by expressing sort of, you know, the database, database of intentions, as John Patel uh, describes it, um, by simply expressing your interest, that simple act of expression, you know, Pareto's law, or whatever else your, your keyword, um, filters out all the crap on the internet, and then delivers to you in the front page something that's very relevant to your interest. And it's taken, it's taken sort of oppressive choice and turned it into liberating choice because you don't just have to settle for what the mainstream media said about Pareto. You can find the best page written by anybody, professional or amateur, anywhere out there, thanks to the miraculous ability of Google to measure relevance based on incoming links and, and bring the best stuff forward to you. That's a very cool thing. I guess, I guess if you were really um, a peculiar person, you could feel compelled to go through every Google page but most of us seem to have gotten the habit of just going at the top few and moving on. Exactly. And, I mean, and, and the simple answer to Barry Schwartz's challenge um, of, you know, uh, uh, Barry says too much choice is, is, is oppressive, and my, sense, and my answer is too much choice without help is oppressive, but fortunately we have help. And we, we have lots of choice with lots of help, then choice becomes liberating. And there's nothing better than help that I get to choose as opposed to help determined by someone who allegedly has my own best interest. So what I love about the Internet is that I can choose what kind of help I want. I can look at certain reviews if I want, certain sites. Of course, there's competition among sites to tell me what to do with right. whatever it is. And one size filter doesn't fit all either. Um, you know, you can, you know, you know, just just think of it. You can do a search. You can have recommendations. You can have rank by best selling. You can rank by review. You can use word of mouth. What other what some blogger recommends. You can, you know, you you can you can look at the um, what the editors have divided their taxonomies into tiny tiny little, you know, little little sub sub uh, categories. Um, you can turn to the professionals for you know for their recommendations. The, the professional reviewers, or you can trust the amateur reviewers even more. Um, different strokes for different folks. Yeah, it is an incredible time to be either a consumer or a thinker. Our access to information really is unparalleled, which is ironic, really, because just a few years ago, people were talking about how this authority or other was going to control the market for ideas, the market for information. You know, Disney was going to decide, you know, we're all going to have little black ears and wear white gloves with three fingers or whatever. It just... The world always surprises us. I, I, th I think that you know I'm I'm a huge optimist um, when it comes to these things. I mean, we've we've talked about. I realize I, we're we're dangerously close to Berkeley um, as we talk here, um, but you know we're really talking about individual empowerment. That you know broadly, the, you know the old model was that people like me in the mainstream media. I'm a Condé Nast editor. You know we've got a we've got a uh, you know we've got the classic skyscraper in, in New York City, four Times Square. Um, we used to control control you know the access to to the public, you know, it, if you didn't come out through our presses and our and our pages, it, it, it didn't get out. And now, of course, anybody you know with the, with a browser um, has access to, uh, to to the public. And you're seeing this extraordinary explosion in things that didn't pass our test, uh, but got out anyway, and turned out to have appeal in ways that we hadn't anticipated. And this and this is the real lesson of the long tail, which is that you know we who we you know who for the last century have been in charge of the you know the means of production. Um, we're trying to guess at what people wanted, and sometimes we got it right, and more often we got it wrong. And when we got it wrong, often things didn't get out, because we guessed wrong. Now everything gets out, and the marketplace sorts it out. And we find that, you know, you, you see the rise of bands from MySpace, the Arctic Monkeys, the Clap Your Hands Say Yeah, you see the YouTube effect of these random snowboarding videos and kids lip-syncing to Backstreet Boys songs. These are things that had not passed the entrance exam for mainstream media. And yet they turned out to be as popular as the, the you know, as, as the CSIs and the, you know, the American Idols of the world. Well, actually, nothing's as popular as not American quite, Idol. No. But it's, they're as popular as, as many mainstream um, acts. Um, and we now have the capacity to see that our interests are more diverse than we as the, we as the sort of the gatekeepers have previously realized. That's a glorious thing, I think. I want to ask you about an example you talk about, uh, a fascinating example in, in the book, which is Wikipedia. Uh, talk, tell us about um, why Wikipedia is so interesting. I think Wikipedia is probably the most important industrial model of our age. Um, I, uh, I never fail to both be enlightened, informed, and inspired when I go to Wikipedia. And I have this little parlor trick. 
uh, that I do with, with, with friends who aren't familiar with it. And, and it goes like this. Um, you, you take someone who doesn't never used Wikipedia before. And you it's take, an online encyclopedia. It's a free online encyclopedia um, that is uh, created by, um, by its readers. Um, so the trick goes like this. You, you, do, you, you, you take someone and you say, um, tell me a subject you know a lot about. And they'll say, um, strawberries. I grow strawberries. And I said, okay. Um, I'm now going to show you the Wikipedia entry on strawberries, and uh, you tell me what you think of this. And invariably, they say it's the best entry they've ever seen on this subject. Unbelievably good. Then I show them a button at the top of the page that says, edit this page, and we click on it, and I said, now let's change it. And they're like, that won't work. It's going to descend into chaos. And I said, but you just told me it was the best entry you've ever seen. Everybody, and this was created by people just like you and people, by people clicking on that button. And then, and then their head spins for a while as they deal with this, with this paradox, which is that a model that's so counterintuitive that can't seem to work, where, the, where anybody, including dumb people and, and evil people and misinformed, and misinformed people and, you know, and, and non-professionals yeah. get to make this thing and that somehow it doesn't descend into chaos. Instead, it gets better and better and better all the time. And you know, the lessons from this are profound. First of all, that knowledge and talent and wisdom are not exclusively held by the we few professionals whose job it is to do this. Um, the second is that there's more good people than bad people in the world, and if you give the good people power to control, to, you know, to, to, to influence this marketplace, they'll win um, over time. Uh, the third is that people will work for free. Yeah, so, very you know, interesting. That, you know, that, that people are motivated by things other than money, things like reputation or just sharing, generosity sometimes. Um, and, and, you know, and, and the fourth is that is that, is, that, is that it's a very, very simple process where you have a, a little bit of technology that allows you to edit the page and then a, a quite simple social hierarchy uh, that gives some people, um, that gives some people a, an additional level of authority where they can inter, intervene when there's what they call revert wars or, or, or bits of, or, or bits of uh, maliciousness. maliciousness. Um, I- exactly. Um, but, uh, so those, those, simple, those simple rules... Um, and a simple bit of technology has created the best encyclopedia the world has ever seen. Um, and I think that's fantastic. There are plenty of people who, who, who quibble uh, with Wikipedia, as you should. Um, but, you know, while seven of us debate Wikipedia good or bad, 70 million people out there use it every day. And, you know, one of the things we're learning, actually, just to finish the thought on, on, on that, about Wikipedia, is that, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, some of those entries aren't right. right. And, you know, it's not perfect. And, you know, and the answer is, Yes, and and so true, and so too for everything else. You know, it, 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 Britannica wasn't perfect. I mean, you know, we Wired Magazine our articles aren't aren't perfect. You know, nothing's perfect. Everything's a work in progress. Um, the point is that now for the first time we're able to check, we're able to see um, how imperfect uh, things are, and recognize that 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 you know perfection is not the goal. Um, improvement is the goal. Wikipedia has a self-improving model. Britannica does not have a self-improving model. Well, it does, but it just works very slowly. Well, it, it right. works, works, works very slowly, but it's not automatically self-improving. Um, and, and the thing about Wikipedia is that you do nothing and it gets better. Yeah, and for those of you who haven't been to Wikipedia, uh, it's written by its readers. There's no editor the way a traditional encyclopedia is written. Edited. It's collectively Everybody edited, as well. which uh, is a strange idea. It is, each article is written by multiple people, not by the, quote, world's authority on strawberries. So the idea would be that there is knowledge among all of us that is captured in that article that can't be captured by the world's best expert because the world's best expert can't go around and find everybody who knows something about strawberries. But Wikipedia effectively harnesses that knowledge. And, and, and one, one other point is that is that Wikipedia is not self-contained. What Wikipedia contains is is um, links to external sources of information. So the right way to think about Wikipedia is not, is, not, is not the end of a search for information, but the beginning of a search, which may take you out of Wikipedia onto other websites. And more importantly, Wikipedia changes every day. Um, so each, you know, each entry represents you know, the best understanding about that subject matter right now, it's rather than a traditional encyclopedia, which would be frozen in time at some point in the past. Now, and I, I want to emphasize your earlier point, which is that the Britannic has errors. If you, if you go to a, quote, good encyclopedia, a traditional encyclopedia, and read about strawberries or whatever it is that you know a lot about, 
my case, I, I like to go and look at what they say about various economists. I'm always shocked, horrified, and surprised at the way they've decided to capsulize of course. a particular concept. And you know, it's not it's not evil um, or ignorant. It's just the reality that that we don't always agree on things. That nobody's perfect, um, and that you know we all have biases built in that are that are often that we have, maybe aren't even visible to ourselves. Another difference, actually, to speak to the um, Wikipedia now has more than a million entries. And Britannica has, I, you probably know the answer, but it's probably, probably along the lines of maybe 100,000, maybe less, maybe more like 60,000 um, entries. Uh, 80, I think 80,000 is, is, is actually the right number. So Wikipedia is unbounded. It can be, you, you can get into subjects. So we talk about strawberries, but you know, that's, that's way too broad. I mean, you know, Wikipedia will have an entry, not just on, on anime, but each anime character will have their own entry. You and I probably have Wikipedia entries. We don't have Britannica entries. So the ability for the encyclopedia to scale down to the niche interests and to dignify each one of them with, a, with every, bit as mu- every bit as much attention and sort of you know, the potential to be a scholarly as the quantum mechanics entry would be is, I think, the way it, it can um, reflect a much more kind of em- embrace, a much, more, a much more expansive sense of what we are interested in rather than the artificially constrained sense through a traditional encyclopedia. I want to come back to a phrase you used a minute ago, which I thought very interesting, contrasting Wikipedia with the traditional encyclopedia. I said, you know, a traditional encyclopedia will have an editor that, who's at the top, who, who, who's responsible for all the, uh, all the entries. And you said that Wikipedia is different. It's collectively edited. And I want to come to something that you mentioned in the book, which, which I'm very interested in, I know many of our listeners are, which is the idea of emergence. The idea that, that there can be order uh, without central, centralized control. So in the case of uh, Wikipedia, collective editing is a phrase that is the best we can do to describe this process. It, it's, in the book, you talk about how our minds don't naturally grasp the idea of order emerging without control, and that we might not even have be hardwired in a way that allows us to conceive of it easily. Talk, talk about that. Yeah, um, I mean, this is a really rich theme. Maybe it'll be my next book. Um, I think it, I think it was ironic, or not ironic, but it's very telling um, that that the three radical emergent, you know, phenomena of our of our era, um, evolution, democracy, and capitalism, are still incredibly radical and counterintuitive notions that we fight about today. I mean, evolution being the the, the latest battle. Um, but you know, people really have a hard time with this, with, with the notion that, that you know, the wisdom of crowds, um, as it were, to use Jim Sirwicky's uh, phrase, and um, you know, it, it is it is it is counterintuitive, but you know, but fortunately, we have a lot of experience to make it work. We're now applying the same model to information. Um, Google is the wisdom of crowds. Wikipedia is the wisdom of crowds. I think um, you know, one of the things that, that's important to note about these things is that they're not totally. You know, it's self, you know, self-created markets, and so they are. There actually is quite a lot of control involved, and just the way that markets work best when they're regulated well. Um, Wikipedia is by no means unregulated. As a matter of fact, it's got a very, a very sort of, you know, a, a clear and effective hierarchy, um, where you have, you know, you not only have the individuals who have, uh, you know, editing power, but I mean, then you have to log in, um, you know, for, for many, uh, for in many entries to make changes. So there's accountability that comes with that. Um, that people who have contributed to, to entries tend to feel a sense of ownership and are quite protective, and they're the ones who, who will watch, they put them on your watch list and keep an eye on changes and revert them when they go. So, you know, vandals tend to have a low engagement, whereas owners have a high engagement. So, you know, the reason the broken window theory doesn't, doesn't, doesn't you know, hold sway here is that, is that, you know, the vandals typically, you know, they may say, like, poop. You know, and they write poop into an entry, and then go off and write poop in some other entry. Um, the guy who wrote that entry in the first place and set his, uh, him up on, on his watch list, he's extremely incentivized to delete poop yeah. from from, uh, from that entry, whereas the vandal is not. Um, and then, and then, you know, the important thing I think I think that people often get this wrong about these so-called open source models because Linux, like, Linux like, like, is like, very similar to this in, in like, certain dimensions. Like, like Linux, um, and uh, you know, and um, you know, MySQL, some of the some of the uh, you know other uh, Firefox, the web browser, these are all open source models. At the core of every successful open source project is a dictator, a benevolent dictator, but a dictator um, all the same. You know, Linus Torvalds, Jimmy Wales at Wikipedia, 
Um, and what you find is that these dictators uh, are both very clear um, about, about, about the rules, and then they delegate to a small number of deputies who are very clear about the rules, and, and, and then they delegate to another layer of deputies. Now, these, now, after the first like five people, these are all amateurs who are doing this out of love, not, not for money. Um, but they do have more power than 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 you know than the people at the you know the, than the mob, and 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 you and you look at them, you do find a um, uh, um, uh, a governance hierarchy within these open source projects, which is nimble and quick and scales uh, beautifully. But it's not open chaos. There, there isn't a method to the madness. No. Um just to come back to this collective editing thing, uh, Hayek, when he talks about the marketplace, which you're referring to capitalism, obviously the same point, that we don't, we have a tough time wrapping our, our minds around these ideas. Hayek mentions that we have trouble finding a language even that would help us understand this. And I'm coming back to this collective editing thing because collective editing in our mind conveys really a group of us in a room discussing, perhaps voting, and coming to a communal decision, a consensus of some kind, either through a vote, uh, through a discussion, a negotiation, but that's not what's going on with Wikipedia. We don't have we don't have a framework really for this form of evolution. That's right. Well, that's because it's statistical. Yeah. Um, you know, um, unlike so so if a committee makes a collective decision, you know, there is a final. There's a final work product, and that is collectively, you know, maybe there's a consensus view. Um, what you're talking about is marketplaces or systems that are dynamic. They're always changing. They're never perfect. They're hopefully improving, but sometimes they go retrograde. Um, they're statistical. They're never right. They're just probabilistically right. Um, and, um, you know, the stock market is the same way. I mean, you know, I know you and I are both Chicago schoolers, so we probably believe that the price is... The price Pretty is, good, yeah. The Stick is, with the price. The, the price. A lot of knowledge there. The price is, the price is, is, is uh, not right. The price is the best possible, um, uh, you know, uh, a price reflecting the collective intelligence of, of all the players in the marketplace. Um, that price changes as the participants and the information change, uh, so it's not a static point. Um, and if it's a statistical point, it's measuring the wisdom of, of, of the crowd statistically. Um, Wikipedia is essentially doing the same thing. It's measuring the sort of collective you know, opinion um, at the moment, but that will change tomorrow and the, cha and, and, and the day after tomorrow. It's never right, um, but one hopes that it is sort of uh, you know, on a path to improvement. Um, which, and it'll never get there, of course, because you can never be perfect. So this, you know, the fact is that we don't we don't understand the concept of things being sort of, you know, in quantum mechanics, things are never, you know, my I, my original training was in, was in physics, and in quantum mechanics, you know, it, it took us a long time to understand that things were neither here nor there, but they were both places simultaneously with some probabilistic function, distribution function, and the same thing now we're now having to apply statistical. Um, methods to understand marketplaces that were once very simple. It's either in Britannica or it's not in Britannica. It's either true or it's not it, true. It's, it's true or it's false. You're a professional or you're an amateur. You know, and um, and now we have sort of you know it's all it's all statistical and probabilistic and sort of it's kind of true or it's mostly true or it's more true than the other thing. Or in six months we'll know more about it than we know now. Or it's getting truer every day. Yeah. You know these these are these are this is not the way our brain is wired. Yeah, and it's. Uh Schrodinger's Encyclopedia, I think, would be the, yeah. the what Wikipedia is about. I, I love Wikipedia. I think it's an incredibly um, useful tool. You shouldn't believe everything you read in it, and you certainly shouldn't believe everything you read in the Encyclopedia Britannica or the New York Times. So there's nothing new under the sun. I, I agree. <laughs> I, I fear that we used to believe, you yeah. know, what was in the New York Times. I hope that I hope that we were smart enough. To, I mean, I know the phrase "Don't believe what you read." Everything you read was was true, but we often did believe what we Absolutely. read because it had that institutional authority. Now you've got a generation that's growing up online, and um, I mean, as I say, I'm a huge optimist, so I, I can't prove it, but I hope I'm right about this. I hope we've trained a generation to use their own, their own powers of critical analysis and to recognize that you, know, not, you, know, that, that you can't believe everything you read online, but you do have a fantastic method to check. And if, you know, it, once you get past you know, authority coming from institutions, and understand that authority comes collectively out of your own your own ability to you know to, to test you know the sort of you know um, uh, you know uh, uh, trust but verify um, notion. Um, hopefully, the Google generation has learned to make up their own mind based on these extraordinary tools of research available to them, rather than having to sort of give 100% of trust into some institution, which it probably didn't deserve in the first place. Well, if you think about it, I never I never thought about it before. I think it's a it's a really interesting 
Very interesting insight. If you think about, again, keeping with this encyclopedia metaphor, if you're, if you're the editor of the, um, the Britannica, if it turns out that the entry on um, strawberries is grossly inaccurate, you're shamed, you might get fired. There might be a, even a, some sort of incentive in your, in your contract for errors and other things. And so there's a, a natural accountability. When you go to the Schrodinger's Encyclopedia, this, this weird collectively written whatever we don't have, again, don't have the language for it, you lose some of the accountability. So what, what is, what's going to maintain the quality? And the answer, just like the marketplace, people say, well, if you let people go out and try to buy and sell stuff without regulation, they'll just take advantage of everybody. But of course, competition is what constrains the marketplace from exploiting consumers. And what constrains Wikipedia is the knowledge of the other players, as you point out, who can correct it. Here's something I hadn't thought about. In, in the old model, the institutions, yes, they had accountability, but they also had a lot more power. So their incentive to mislead and to, mis, uh, uh, to abuse folks was much larger. Where here, power in this distributed model is so diversified, there's no self-interest. The people are doing it, as you say, out of love. They're not, they're not, they don't have a self-interest. Oh, I, I would disagree with you there. Which part of it? Um, uh, the, the, the fact they don't have a self-interest. Yeah, that was, that was stupid. I don't know why I said that. It, the, obviously it came out of my mouth in a meaningless way, but yeah, so scratch that. But the idea that power is um, uh, um, diffused in, in, one of these, in these types of systems in a way that it isn't in the mainstream media, mainstream institutions, is, is very different. Well, you know, the, the, you know I, I'm, I, I stand with one leg firmly in mainstream media and one, and one foot in mainstream media and the other foot very firmly in the blogosphere out there with the rabble and, and, and the other amateurs. And, um, you know, I, I see people get it wrong on both sides. Um, the professionals uh, don't, don't credit the amateurs with having skills that we've, they demonstrably do have. And the amateurs um, assume malice to the errors of the professionals, where incompetence is a much, more, a much easier explanation. The reality is, is that you know, we in the mainstream media um, blow it all the time. But we blow it not because there's a, there's a you know, a, a, uh, you know, the, you know, the conspiracy theory to, you know, to, to twist and warp the American mind is, is, is at play. We blow it because we're human. And, you know, we have limited time and limited resources and limited, you know, and, and we, just, we make mistakes like everybody else. Um, you know, we have, we, we're human. We have biases like everybody else. Um, you know, our only error, I would suggest, is that we don't acknowledge our biases to ourselves. Um, we pretend that we're even-handed and dispassionate, where, where the truth is we are just human. I think we do a better job than, 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 than some of the alternatives, but we're by no means um, perfect. So I, I think that you know, um, it's, it's, not, it's not so much competition, although there is competition. So I used to compete, well, let me start with the competition. So I used to compete with other magazines and newspapers, and you know, winning was getting out before Business Week or Fortune or whatever. Now I compete with 27 million blogs. Um, and there are more of them, and they know collectively more than I do, and they have access to more recent, to more information than I do, um, you know, collectively. And I need, and not like that, but my readership is 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 now reading both of them. So I need to tell my readership something that they're not getting out there, and the, you know, from the collective you know blogosphere. And I think that's going to make me better. Um, not only am I able to tap that information, and some of the some of the you know reporting is distributed to to the amateurs, um, but I also have this requirement to not sort of say the obvious, to advance the ball, and do something the blogosphere can't do. That's that's um, you know I think that's very healthy. Um, I think the reason, however, that the blogosphere etc. gets better is only partly about about competition. It's also it's also partly because it can. So why would why would a entry in Wikipedia, let's just switch from the blogosphere to Wikipedia, although they are actually two sides of the same phenomena, which is the peer production, um, you know, creation. Why would Wikipedia entries get better? Is it because, you know, your traffic will go to another entry if you're not good? No, they get better because if you as a reader read that entry and it's wrong, the old model was you would, you know, shake your fist at the sky, you know, bitch, bitch a little bit, you know, write a letter, you were, maybe. If you're absolutely furious, you would write a letter to God knows, I don't know, the editor of the Britannica. And, you know, 12 years later, when the next version came out, it probably wouldn't be included, but it might be. Um, the new version is you press edit this page. And you act, and you act on that moment where you have knowledge that's not reflected in there, or you spot a bias, or you, you, this, this, this momentary, you know, um, delta between your sense of truth and what this thing says is truth is becomes an actionable moment, yeah. and 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 you fix it. You don't you don't rail against the flaws. You improve them. 
you don't prove flaws. You you yeah, you, 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 you rectify them. You rectify them exactly. And and the and the fact that we're all sort of suddenly given this 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 tool to make things better, I think makes the world better. It's it's as simple as that. You give people tools to do things, and they'll do things. Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. I I like the direction you took that question. I actually meant more powerful institutions, not so much particular magazines, but, but governments and, and others who dispense information and have control of it, and that some people still think uh, have are, are, are purely benevolent, but my feeling is that politicians, like others, are self-interested. Um, let me ask you, uh, we're almost out of time, let me ask you a political question. You talked about this generation having a different experience uh, with information. They also have a different experience of this emergent phenomenon we're talking about. Um, the Internet itself, Google, Wikipedia, a lot of these things that are part of our everyday experience now, especially for younger people, are, um, are mainstream for them and not novel as they, are to, as they were. Do you think that has any political implications? Do you think people might conceivably be more trusting of things that are uncontrolled, like the marketplace, be willing to say, okay, I'm n I, no one's in charge of it, not even the president, yeah. not even Ben Bernanke, not even Alan Greenspan in the past. Is it possible that there are good things about that, just as we recognize there are good things about the Internet, and maybe we'll be, we'll be a little more trusting of uncontrolled processes? Boy, you know, hope springs eternal. Doesn't it? Um, <laughs> You know, I, 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 it's a great question. Um, I see no evidence of it, unfortunately. I mean, you would think that you know the generation that grew up um, understanding the emergent power of the internet would make the leap between that and and, and politics. The problem is, is that um, you know, I mean, how many years has it been that we've been saying, well, this is the year that the internet influences the outcome of the election, and you know, it, it tends not to. Um, I think every year it's Every year it gets closer to influencing. I mean, you know, last, the last presidential election, the Internet clearly influenced fundraising. Yes, it, did. it didn't necessarily change the outcome, but um, it, uh, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't have an answer. I mean, we have, you know, just talk about the long tail. We don't have a long tail of political parties. We've got two. It seems like a little slightly narrow. Yeah, I mean, what are the, you know what are the scarcity effects that that that, that force the you know the extraordinary distribution of political beliefs in our country to to collapse into two into two parties? I, I, I you know obviously some of them have to do with our democratic system of, of representative you know democracy. Some of them have to do with with um, you know uh, ability to to poll our people and and to collect votes um, efficiently. Um, they have to do with the propagation of political information. They have to do with you know special interests and and all this kind of stuff. I I don't know what the answer is. I wish I wish that we could reflect the diversity of, pub, of political opinion um, uh, as well as we reflect as we currently reflect the diversity of cultural opinion uh, today. I believe we are as diverse politically as we are culturally. I don't see the path that takes us there anytime soon in politics. Um, I hope. Maybe maybe someday you you can you can I'll read one of your blog posts and you will and you will illuminate the way forward. Uh, but at the moment, I'm somewhat defeatist about that. Okay. Well, thank you, Chris Anderson, author of The Long Tail: Why the Future of Business Is Selling Less of More, the editor in chief of Wired Magazine, uh, for a very interesting conversation. Thanks. Thanks.